Thank you for being with us today. We would love to have you join us in person. To partner with us or to give online, go to www.upperroomohio.com. We hope you enjoy this message. Introducing and welcoming Steve Justice up here. So, can we just give him a clap as he gets up? Make him feel super uncomfortable. Well, good morning, everyone. I, I give you greetings from Pastor uh, Aaron and, and Pastor Josh. Uh, they are, I think, in the air on their way back from Texas. They've been uh, down there in Texas at an upper room in uh, in Texas. I'm not sure we're in Texas, but. Dallas, Dallas, Texas. There you go. And uh, they're on their way back. And Aaron's really cool. He, he texted me this morning, always sends me some sort of a encouraging comment uh, to encourage me to speak. Now, you know, it's really never hard for an attorney to speak, right? I mean, you know, people accuse us of getting paid by the word. So there's sort of a natural incentive. But nevertheless, I appreciate his encouragement. Um, this morning, it, uh, when Pastor Aaron asked, uh, asked me to speak, he actually uh, asked for a team teaching. And so this young man to my uh, left and your right is my youngest son, Nathan. And trust me when I tell you that Nathan is an upgrade. Um, that's, that's a sort of IT language I learned from my phone. So, um, and he is in his uh, last year of, of, of graduate studies to obtain his Master of Divinity degree. That's not like a type of candy. That's actually uh, theological studies. And, uh, and he's, he's attending the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary down in Louisville, Kentucky. So today we're going to be team teaching. And we're going to be talking about a topic um, that is... Um, uh, one that most people just rush to churches to hear about. Uh, stewardship... And, uh, and generosity. We're going to talk about money, right? And so before all of you sort of rush to a negative place in your brain, oh my, you're going to talk about money. Uh, it's important we talk about money because the reality is the scriptures talk a whole lot about it. We live, is this news to anybody? We actually live in a very materialistic age. I mean, for those of you who didn't know, Madonna helped us learn that a long time ago, right? When she told us we live in a material world. Okay, I won't do that to you. But nevertheless, yeah, we live in a very materialistic society that likes its stuff. And I mean, can we just be honest for a moment? I mean, we, we like our stuff. To look at your neighbor, just go ahead and get it out and say, I like my stuff. Go ahead. You know, we like, we, we, we like our stuff. But, but our world, okay, that's enough. That's enough. You don't have to tell about all your stuff, Okay. So, but we like our stuff, and we like being comfortable, and we like having our things around us. You know, and as Christians, that's okay. I mean, we're not, we're not ascetics. We're, we don't believe in renouncing the material world. We don't take a negative view to the material world. But we, we, we understand that God gave us the material world as a blessing. Yet, yet sometimes we get into a, a, a bad relationship with the material world. We, 
We, you know, we, 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 we seem to think that it's our stuff. And I emphasize the word our. Now, I know about this because, like, I write deeds, you know, that say who owns the house. And we write titles to cars so you know who owns the car. And we write loan agreements so that you can be reminded regularly of who you owe money to. And all these wonderful things that sort of lay out who owns the stuff. But really and truly, all you have to do is, is, is go to a funeral to find out that no one really owns their stuff. I mean, nobody's taking it with them. I mean, you can bury somebody in your car if you want, but they're not driving it anymore. I'm just telling you. You know, because all of us are someday we're going to die. They're going to put us in the ground. They're going to throw dirt in our face and go back to the church and eat potato salad and baked beans. And that's just the way it is. That, that really is what it, and, and if you hadn't realized it to that point, you're going to realize it right then that I don't really own my stuff. Because God's plan from the beginning was that we have a different relationship with our stuff. He calls it, he calls it stewardship. The, the concept of stewardship is that God, by his grace, gives it to us and we steward it. For his purposes. And he gives us enough so that we have enough for ourselves to meet our needs, not our wants, our needs, and enough to give to someone else. So that's why we want to talk today briefly about the concepts of stewardship and generosity. Now we're going to do this in a tag team mess. You know, this is like, I'm thinking big time wrestling. When, 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 Sam, when Sam and Nathan were, you know, were young, I mean, they used to... They used to play big time wrestling in our house. You know, they would take their mattresses off the bed and throw them down on the floor. And, you know, they would tag, tag team, you know, like one would tag. And I don't know who they were wrestling, but they would get on the mat and they would roll around, you know, that kind of thing. One day I came home from work and literally in my front yard, I got this huge stone. They drug the mattress out into the front yard and they're jumping off the huge. I'm like, what do the neighbors think about my house? You know, it's just. So we're going to tag team this today. And Nathan's going to start off. By telling us some things about what Jesus has to say in our relationship to the material world. And then I'm going to follow up with an example from the church at Corinth and, and what Paul had to say about generosity and giving. And Nathan's going to close with some further words from Jesus from Matthew chapter 25. So without further ado, please welcome my youngest son, Nathan Joseph. <laughs> You guys get double trouble this morning, so you can look forward to it. Uh, like my dad said, I will be talking about Jesus's perspective on money, so I'm going to be focusing on the gospel according to Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. I think we'll have it on the screen as well for those who don't have a Bible. But I'm going to be focusing on verses 19 through 24. And I'll just read those quickly and dive in with them later. So this is the word of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the main point that Jesus is trying to make here is that if you're going to cultivate a spirit of stewardship and generosity, you have to desire God above everything else. Now, the context of these verses here is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Jesus goes on top of a mountain as the new prophet, like Moses, and delivers new revelation about what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like. And he starts off in the first chapter, chapter 5, talking about the Beatitudes, what it looks like to be blessed in the kingdom of heaven. And he emphasizes that when you enter into the kingdom of heaven as a son or daughter of God, you are pledging your allegiance to Jesus. We call Jesus the Christ, which means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the kings would be anointed with oil to recognize God's blessing on their life. But Jesus wasn't anointed with oil. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he came to set the captives free, to give the blind sight, to open the mouths of the mute, and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And so as the king long prophesied as coming from the line of David, he demands, as your king, that you would give him the authority and permission to require your allegiance to him above anyone and anything. And that's going to define your relationship with anything, with your spouse, with your family, your relationship to stuff, as my dad has already talked about. Everything has to be viewed in light of our position as a servant of Jesus the King. And so he starts off in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 6, talking about what our priority should be in the kingdom. And Jesus wisely recognizes that what we prioritize in our lives has already captivated our hearts. He says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you treasure God, then you're going to prioritize him and his commands in your life. If you prioritize anything created, such as stuff, that's going to rule your heart and affect every area of life as well. So we have to, have to ask the question... What is the wisest thing to prioritize in our lives? And so, he says that we shouldn't lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. We shouldn't collect stuff just for having stuff. Because it can be taken away at a moment's notice. It can be eaten up by moths. It can rust away. It can be stolen by thieves. When we look to things like money to satisfy our desire for security and peace... We transition from money being a useful tool to a harsh master. And it will never satisfy because it never lasts. The wise choice is to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. When we prioritize the kingdom of heaven, the treasure that we will receive will never be destroyed or stolen from us. It will always be our possession. And Jesus also recognizes that what we prioritize in our hearts will affect every aspect of our lives. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about the eye as the lamp of the body. And Jesus' teaching, light represents righteousness, right standing before God, and personal holiness. While darkness represents sinfulness and corruption. So when we supremely desire God and his kingdom, 
when our eye is healthy, then our whole body will be full of light, meaning that we will grow in holiness and increase our conformity to the image of Christ. But when we prioritize anything in creation above the Creator, when our eye is bad or unhealthy, our whole body is full of darkness. We degenerate into further sin and corruption. And as Jesus says, if the light in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? And he ends by recognizing that we can't play both sides. If we have a master, we can only have one. Only one person is going to be able to claim entire authority of our lives. Because you can either love one and hate the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. There's no in-between. You cannot equally serve God and money. There's no 50-50 here. It's 100%. So you have to decide today, what are you going to choose? Are you going to submit your life to God and not allow Him to have authority over your entire life? Or are you going to let stuff rule you? Now, this is a lot of abstract ideas, so we need to understand how this works out practically. So my dad is going to be speaking from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, discussing how Paul views generosity and how it should work itself out in the church at Corinth. Thanks, Nate. So our relationship with stuff is really, really fundamental and important. But what Nathan has just shared is essentially it's a matter of whether we're going to worship God or whether we're going to worship an idol. The idol in this case being money or our stuff. In fact, you can, you can, it doesn't have to just be our stuff. We can, we can actually substitute for God many other things in our lives that would become idols to us. Money and assets being one. Well, let's look at what Paul had to say about our relationship with things and generosity. The Apostle Paul came to Corinth um, on his second missionary journey. He had already come across northern Greece in a region called Macedonia. And as he went, he planted churches. So he planted a church in Philippi. He planted a church in, in Thessalonica. He planted a church in Berea. He came down through the heart of, of uh, Greece, down to Athens. And then last, he went over to Corinth. Now, Corinth is in southern Greece as opposed to, to northern Greece. On a narrow isthmus of land, uh, it, was a, it was a major connection between two different bodies of water. They would literally carry ships across this seven-mile stretch of land from one sea to another to avoid having to go around the coast. And so it was a fairly wealthy town in a region called Achaia. So Paul comes into Corinth, as he normally does, and the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue, because Paul was a Jew. And he's going to talk about a Jew, Jesus Christ. And he's going to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah. So his typical pattern was to first go to the synagogue, which is the place where the Jews would worship. He comes to the synagogue, and he shares the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Now, some in the synagogue accept that, and some don't. And after a while, they get quite tired of Paul. And they, so he decides to leave the synagogue and open up a church right next door. So he, 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 he gets in contact with this guy whose name is Titius Justus, maybe one of my long-lost relatives, I don't know, spelled a little differently, but nevertheless, I'll take full credit for it. And so 
Titius Justice owns a house right next door to the synagogue. And so Paul's kind of like, you got to see the humor in this, okay? Paul's kind of like, yo, you want to throw me out? All right, okay, I'll put it right next door to you. So he goes over and he, you know, he opens up a church in the house of Titius Justice and he continues to preach. Well, after a while, the Jews still will have none of that. So they decided to go to the magistrate in the town whose, whose name was Gaius, okay? And he was the proconsul or the magistrate, and they, they tried to bring charges against Paul. And Gaius says, guys, guys, come on. I, I don't want to listen to your arguments about Jewish law and all this kind of stuff. I don't want to have any, get out of my sight. I don't want to deal with you. Okay? So essentially, you know, Paul leaves and, and goes out of the, out of the presence. And then the, the Jews, they go to the leader of their synagogue, whose name was Sosthenes, and they beat him up. I mean, literally, in the courtroom, they start pounding on this guy. And not surprisingly, we find out a few chapters later, Sosthenes becomes a Christian. Okay, he's like, I ain't going back there. So he, he becomes a Christian and starts to follow Paul. So all that's going on, and Paul is, is, spends a year and a half in Corinth. And when he leaves Corinth, he writes them a letter. And he says, listen, your fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are Jewish Christians, are suffering persecution and famine. They don't have enough to eat. They, they, they are suffering persecution at the hands of the Jews and others in Jerusalem. And so I'm asking all of the churches in Greece, both in Macedonia and the north, and you down in the south, I'm asking you to take up a collection for them. Each Sunday when you gather, I want you to take some of the money, some of the assets that God has given you, and I want you to set them aside little by little. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get those from you. So that's how he closes his first letter to the Corinthians. Well, then what happens is some guys that Paul calls super apostles come to town. And they begin to somewhat pervert the message that Paul had shared. In fact, they actually sort of impugn the integrity of Paul. They, they say, Paul, apostle, he doesn't look like an apostle. He's, they, they essentially accuse him of being somewhat disheveled. You know, he doesn't walk and talk like the rarefied apostle. And in fact, he doesn't speak well at all. They talk about how he's not a good speaker. And in fact, most speakers who would come to town would sort of live off the money and the assets of those they were speaking to. And Paul would have none of that when he came to Corinth. He, he hooked up with Priscilla and Aquila, who were some Christians who had been in Rome. And they were tent makers. And so Paul makes tents for a living to support himself because he didn't want to take a dime from the Corinthians. He wanted nothing to come between him and the message of the gospel. So Paul essentially takes nothing from them. And so these, these super apostles, I love the word that Paul uses in the Greek. It's, it's called, the, word, the Greek word is translated superlative or superfine. Superfine. You know, I, as I was reading that, you know, I, I was going back to my high school days, you know, where, you know, I would, I would, I, I, I wore platform shoes. You know what I'm saying? Platform shoes. I, I had, I had long blonde hair, you know. I know you can see it, right? And it's parted down the middle. I just had this favorite pair of blue pants I wore. They were sort of gummies, you know. They had a had a had a band like that, and they were they had that the, the, the sort of rainbow colors on the belt. And and I would come into school, you know. I just sort of, you know, how you sort of, you know. I know. I'm just saying. I, so 
So, you know, sometimes when you read the scriptures, this kind of stuff can happen to you. Something just comes over you, you know what I mean? And so I was, I was, I read superlative and I went to, you know, super fine and then somehow I ended up a super fly and that's where I got to, right? Well, I'm not quite sure if these guys strutted into town or not, okay? But essentially what they did was they, they got the Corinthians to stop taking up the collection. And I think the way it reads, it seems as if they were, they were sort of suggesting that you don't want to take up that money because if Paul comes back and, and collects it, he's, he's probably just going to take it for himself. So Paul, in the midst of the, the message of these super apostles, he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. And, and he begins in chapter 8, if you'll turn with me to chapter 8. And, and he, he begins to tell them why they should give. Why should you be generous with your stuff? Why should you complete this collection? And it begins with verse 1 in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. It says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's the churches up north. Okay? We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord... And then by the will of God to us. So the first, the first thing that Paul says to, the, to encourage them to begin to give again is he says to look at the example of the Macedonians. Look at what Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea did. Look at what those churches have done. And you know what? When we're trying to follow Jesus with passion, sometimes we can get confused. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we can, we can feel like our, we're praying and it's like our prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back down. And I don't know about you, but in those times in my life, some, sometimes what God has said is, listen, go look at someone else. Go look at someone else that you know in your heart is passionately following Jesus Christ and get some of that. Get some of that. Look at your neighbor and say, I want to get some of that. Absolutely. So, so it's not bad theology to say, look at the example. And Paul did this several times. He would say, listen, look at me. Follow the example that I'm setting. Because we're concrete individuals. We look at people. We, we need examples. And so Paul says, listen, Corinth, look at what the Macedonians. Specifically, he starts off with this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. You've got to catch that. It's really, really significant. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonians because they gave. Now, the point is this. Paul understands fundamentally that there's not a thing that we ever have. There's not a thing that we ever give that does not come from the hand of God. So Paul is recognizing at the outset that these Macedonians... Gave an amazing gift. But it wasn't their gift. It was ultimately a gift from God. 
grace of God came to them and through them to others. I just want you to put your hand in the air like this, come down like this, and go out like that. All right? One more time. Up and down. Okay, now breathe. Up and down. I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. Okay. So, but here's the point. That's it. That's stewardship. Everything you have came from God. You don't have a thing in your life that didn't come from God. Come on, that's right. You say, well, I got my job. <laughs> God ain't going to work for me every day. <laughs> I got my money. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you something. You got that job because God gave you that job. You, you got what you have because God gave it to you. You want to find out how tenuous you can be? Just live life. Jobs can go away. Life can change. If you haven't lived long enough, life will visit your doorway. The reality is, there's not a thing we have that didn't come from God. And so Paul starts off by saying, you know, the grace of God given among the churches of Macedonia. They gave because God gave it to them. And they gave it out. Secondly... Paul notes that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. But they gave according to what they had. Okay? Hang on to that concept. Next, they gave despite their personal circumstances. Note what he says here. The Macedonians were suffering persecution and they were dead poor. I mean, you pull out the pockets, there was nothing there. They were in poverty. And being persecuted. And they gave. I don't like that. I like to think I'm only supposed to give when everything's right. When the stars align, the sun's shining, there's no clouds, you know. I got to give when things are tough. I got to give when I'm struggling to, to pay my bills. And not only that, you've got to see the attitude. He says, they gave with joy. You see, the joy was sprinkled in between the poverty and the affliction. And they gave with joy. And they begged to give. They begged to give when they were poor, when they were afflicted. And they gave with great joy. Notice the attitude. Because the attitude is as important as the act. We're going to talk about that more in just a second. Finally, so why did they give with such great joy? Why did they beg to give? Here's the key. Paul says because they gave themselves first to Jesus and then to him. They gave themselves first to Jesus. Don't you like that? Yeah. Literally, they, 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 they looked upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. They gave themselves first to Jesus. 
and they saw what mattered. And then they gave themselves to Paul. So, so why should you give, Corinthians? Why should you continue this collection? Look at the example of the Macedonians. Next, he says, look at Jesus himself. Look at verse 9 of chapter 8. He says this. Paul expressly says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You should continue the collection. You should be generous. You should give because of Jesus. Because of what he did for you. In Philippians, he would say that Jesus left, left heaven. He set aside all of his kingly robes. He came to earth as a common man. He lived among us. He, and, and ultimately, he gave all he had, including his very life. What else can you give? What else is left? He gave his life. He became poor so that you, Corinthians, could become rich. So that you could have eternal life. So that you could be redeemed. So that you could be healed. So that you could be restored. So that you could have the stuff you have. So look at Jesus. And the next reason he says, ultimately is because giving actually benefits you. It actually benefits you. Look at what he says in, in, in verse 10. He says this. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish it doing well. So bottom line is, he understands that when we give, we are actually functioning in the design that God intended. God's stewardship plan was that his grace would flow to us and through us to others. That there would be enough for us to meet our needs and to go out to others. That was God's plan. And when we function in God's plan, when we have the right relationship to stuff, when he's on the throne and not our stuff, it truly benefits us. And that's why Paul says, it's going to benefit you to finish what you started. But then the question comes, well, how much are we supposed to give? I mean, let's, let's get down to it. You know, how, how, much, how much are we supposed to give? Well, let's look at what he says in verses 12 to 15. In chapter 8, he says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul's point is this. Your abundance is meant to supply not only your needs, but the needs of others. And he has in mind a principle of fairness or equality within the body of Christ. You will remember in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, 12, and 13, Paul talks about the, the church as being a body. He uses the analogy of a body. And so when we eat... 
The nutrients that we take into our body, do they go all over our body or do they just help your right arm? Well, no, they, they, they go to our whole body. And you know what? If they don't go to our whole body, guess what happens to that part? It dies. It going to fall off. Okay? That's, that's what happens. So Paul has in mind, using a similar analogy, that when one part of the body, in this case Corinth, has abundance available to it, God has given them that abundance, not so that they can hoard it and end up on the hoarder show in Corinth. No, so that they can actually use that to help another part of the body, which is hurting. He sees it as a godly principle of fairness and equity. And it should inform how we give and how generous we are. But, you know, at the same time, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, listen, you keep talking about generosity and how much we're supposed to give. But what about the tithe? What about the 10%? And some of you might even go further than that because you have great attention to detail. And you might say, well, and with regard to the tithe, should I be tithing on the gross or on the net? Should I be giving uh, pre-tax or uh, post-tax? So, I'm just wondering. You know. oh, I've actually had those questions before, you know. And, and here's what I'm going to say to you. You're so excited to hear the answer to this. I know, I know. If you have to ask that question, you've already lost. You really have. You say, well, the Old Testament talks about tithing. Yeah, oh, yeah, it does. And in fact, it was an Old Testament concept under the Old Covenant. And we, we you know, the, the, the Israelites were directed to give 10% of their harvest or their produce to support the Levites. And if you actually do the math and you add to it the other offerings they were supposed to give, it's actually more like 22%. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But what I'm declaring to you, what Nathan is declaring to you this morning is Jesus has called us to a far more radical concept. You're never going to give your 22% to anything. Everything you have belongs to God. And we operate by a different principle where you could even be giving more than 22%. Oh, no. Settle down. Settle down. Okay. But let's look here. What he says. I want you to go to verse 6 of chapter 9. We're going to jump down to, to chapter 9, verse 6. He says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. So he calls us to a different principle. First of all, understand that nothing you have really belongs to you. It's all God's. It comes to us, and it's intended not just for us, but to flow out of us. That's his design. And secondly, don't get hung up about 20, or 10% or 22%. It all belongs to him. You should sow bountifully, which could be far, far more than what we typically call the tithe. Jesus is calling us to a far more radical understanding of our relationship with stuff. Because you see, our attitude matters. Look at what he says in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there it comes from the Greek word hilarious, from which we get the word hilarious. Right? God loves a hilarious giver. 
Why does he love a hilarious giver? Because God is a hilarious giver. <laughs> He's given us a lot. He hasn't been stingy in the least. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him, then we're going to be of the same spirit. You understand that our attitude is probably as important, if not more important, than the amount we give. And that's why Paul says, you must decide in your heart. This is a heart matter. Remember what Nathan said earlier? This is a heart matter. You must decide in your heart who's going to be the master in your life. And, 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 and don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, but give with a cheerful, a hilarious heart. So some of you are sitting here thinking, well, okay, that, that's about me because I've never been real hilarious about giving. I guess I don't need to give. No, it's not what I'm saying. You see, sometimes our emotions follow our actions. I would tell you this. Give even if you don't feel like it. Give even if you don't feel like it. Because God can work on your heart. Those who believe, obey. And those who obey, believe. Well, <clears throat> our attitude in giving also matters because it reflects ultimately our faith in God. Our trust that God will enrich us in every way to be generous in every way. Look at what he says in verses 8 through 11. After he says God loves a cheerful giver, he says this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every, you could put all in there again, in all and every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. He, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. There it is. You will be enriched in every way. Why? So that you can hoard it and keep it for yourself? No. So that you can be generous in every way. You see, fundamentally, when we give... At its heart, when we are generous, it is a statement of our trust in God. If I give, I, I, I'm fundamentally hoping, praying, trusting, believing that God will supply. And when we don't, let's be honest with ourselves. When we don't, whether we say it or not, our actions are indicating that we don't believe God can take care of us. I mean, can we be real? That's what that means. Now, I'm not saying that you're, you're you know, lower life form if you think that way. We, on our Wednesday night Bible study, we, we have some brothers and sisters in there who come every week. And, and every once in a while, something, someone will just throw out something so dead honest and say, you know, listen, I... I, I, I've sat in church numerous times and wondered about whether I should give because I've got this bill to pay and I've got this to do and I've got that. And, and you know, they throw out this idea and it, they throw it out on the middle of the floor and it flops around down there for a while, you know. And we beat on it. We talk about it. It's all good. Get it out. Let's talk about 
Because this is life and death, friends. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to talk it. But am I going to give? And I'm telling you, fundamentally, whether I give or not is a statement of my trust. We want to be a Sea of Galilee, not a Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is a beautiful sea. You read about it in the New Testament. They would sail on, a dead sea, on, on, the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. They would catch fish and so forth and so on. You never hear about them going down to the Dead Sea and catching fish. And why? Because it's dead. It's, dead. it's the lowest body of water in the world, 1,500 feet below sea level. And what's interesting is that everything flows into it and nothing comes out. The Sea of Galilee, it rains. The water leaves us out. The Sea of Galilee goes down the Jordan River, goes to the Dead Sea, and stops. And everything there is dead. When we accept God's grace and keep it for ourselves and don't do this, when we do this, but not also this, we become a Dead Sea. We want to be the Sea of Galilee. Coming in and flowing out. Coming in, flowing out. God will enrich us in every way to be generous in every way. And the last thing I want you to note is that Paul says, look at what happens when you engage in godly generosity. You, it will lead to thanksgiving. It will bring glory to God. And it will lead to prayers to God on our behalf. Let's read verses 11 through 15. And then I'm going to hand this back to Nathan. It says, you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service not only is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all, the, all others. While they long for and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. When we are doing this, it should naturally lead to thanksgiving. Some of the most fun people to be around are the most thankful people. I once had a client in my office. He was struggling with a number of, of legal matters. And he kept telling me that he would wake up at about 1 or 2 in the morning just struggling with anxiety over all of the pressing. And they, and they, they dealt with assets and material things and, and, and financial difficulties. All these things would just create tremendous stress in his life. And so I said to him, I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. Next time you wake up at 1 o'clock in the morning and you're struggling with anxiety, I want you to take out a pen and a piece of paper. And I want you to begin to write down on that piece of paper every blessing that comes to mind. I just want you to start making a list. And each time you write one down, I want you to thank God for that person. Thank God for that thing. Thank God for this. And I said, what you're going to find is that when you are engaged in a pattern of thanksgiving like this, when you are giving glory to God for his, his grace to you, you cannot at the same time be thinking about all that junk. The brain can't do it. And so, you know, he came back to me. We, I, it was, I don't know, it was a few months later he came back and he said, man, it was so helpful. The advice you gave me. And I'm thinking, well, you know, legal advice. You know, 
That's what I get paid to do, no problem. You know, all this sort of thing. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about your legal advice. He said, I want, you know, that, that word you gave me about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. He said, man, that, that made me be able to sleep. He said, that changed the way I was thinking. So when we are in this, it will lead to thanksgiving from us and should and thanksgiving from others and glory to God from us and glory to God from others and prayers to, for our benefit on behalf of those to whom God's grace has been given through us. That's stewardship. That's generosity. Now, back to the upgraded version, Nathan Justice, to take us back to what Jesus has to say. All right, time to tag in. So, we're going back to the Gospel of Matthew here. I'm going to be in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. So, some context. Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 25 is in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, uh, chapters 23 through 25, where this is the last month of Jesus' life. So, he's already ministered for several years. He's going into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the, he and his disciples have left the city, gone to the Mount of Olives, which is a few miles away. And he's talking about what his second coming is going to be like. And so he gives this parable called the parable of the talents. And he says that his second coming will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now we have to stop here and ask an important question. What is a talent? Now there's a nice pun here about using your talents for God and all that kind of thing. A talent actually started out as a measurement of weight. So it was an amount that a soldier could carry on his back. So this was anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds. But the talent later became a measurement of money as well. So it was 75 to 100 pounds of gold or silver, which is a massive amount of money. So if you were to take the approximate cost of one ounce of gold today, which is around $1,500, and calculate out the amount of money each servant received in today's money, then the first servant would have been given the equivalent of $9 million. The second servant would have received the equivalent of $3.6 million. And the third servant would have gotten the equivalent of $1.8 million. Now you have to notice that the master who's representing Jesus here gave these different amounts of talents to each according to his ability. We have to recognize that God has not only given us natural abilities, natural talents that we have just by where we grew up, who our parents were, that kind of thing. But if you're a Christian, then you have been baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that means you have received spiritual gifts from God that he desires for you to use to edify his church. And so that means that different people have received different amounts of natural and spiritual gifts. But God has given those different gifts because he recognizes who you are, what you're able to handle, and how he wants to use you 
to help the people around you. So he gives the talents, the master goes away. He who had received the five talents, verse 16, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So this could have been years, even decades in the story of the parable. The master comes back and he wants to see how his servants have handled the resources that he has given them. First servant was the $9 million. He comes forward. He says, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he gives the same response to the person with two talents. Guy with two talents comes forward, says, You gave me two, I made two more. Master says the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we have to recognize that the master doesn't criticize the man with two talents for not getting five talents back. He doesn't make a distinction between the two. Each received the exact same response. Delight from the master and their faithfulness over the resources he had given them and even further responsibility than what they had before. And so I want to apply this to us now. In church, it is very easy to compare ourselves with other people. We see people up on stage singing, giving messages. It's very easy to think that we have to hold them to a higher pedestal, that they're somehow more worthy of praise in God's sight. But we all will get the same response by how we handle the stuff and the gifts that God has given us. If we handle it well, we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But there's the third servant, the one who received the one talent and buried it in the ground. He comes forward and he says this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when you read this master's response, you might be inclined on first reading to agree with the third servant, that he's a hard man. Now, the, the word hard here also refers to someone being strict or harsh or cruel or merciless. But why should we think that the master was a hard man? If you read the rest of the parable, he's given them an exorbitant amount of money. 
He's given them millions of dollars to invest using their own wisdom and reason. And when he comes back, he asks them to enter into his joy. It's very clear that the servant, this third servant, had a twisted view of the master. And if you think of how the master represents Jesus, how can we think of Jesus as cruel or merciless? No. In Exodus 34, 6, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, he defines his own nature. And this is how God refers to himself. I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. And I abound in faithful love. Does that sound cruel to you? Or merciless? Or strict? We have to recognize that when we enter a church for the first time, if we haven't encountered Christianity before, there's going to be a lot of assumptions that you're going to bring just based on how our culture views Christianity. But we have to reorient our perspective in light of Scripture. And scripture says that God created each and every one of us to image him. Now, the image of God in the ancient Near Eastern context, referred to someone who is a physical representative of a deity. So in Genesis, God is asking us to image him. That not only means that we have a similar nature to him, that we have a higher level of consciousness, we're relational, we are able to establish relationships with other people, but he says that we should be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Because you see, God, as the creator, has asked each and every one of us to cultivate creation alongside of him, just as a gardener goes throughout his garden, pulls out weeds, cares for the plants. But instead of helping out God, cultivating creation alongside with him, instead, we naturally desire to worship creation rather than the creator. And that only results in our own corruption and destruction. But Jesus, in his ministry provides a new perspective for us to adopt. He, as the long-prophesied king, is giving you an offer. He says, I will take all of the sins that you've committed, bad thoughts, bad deeds that you've committed that go against God's uh, commands that he has revealed both in nature and through his covenant with Israel. I will take that on myself. And in return, I will unite you with myself and I will give you my righteousness. So that now when you stand before God, you can enter boldly before the throne of grace and proclaim, I am Jesus Christ's. And it is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. And it is for his sake that I now live. Amen. And so, when you come to this parable, we have to reorient our perspective for those who are not Christians here today. The offer is open. Jesus Christ is offering you a new life, a rebirth, a transformation that will affect the rest of your life. And I, it is my prayer that you would receive it today. But for those of us who are Christians, who have already been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who have received God's grace and have submitted our lives to him, the question is, where is the evidence that the grace of God has been given to you? Where are you giving where are you investing the talents that God has given you? 
Because as my dad talked about, he has been abundantly generous. God is, is rich in mercy and incomparably great in power. And the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him to sit at the right hand of the Father is now the power that is working inside of you through the Holy Spirit. So through all the gifts that he has given us, what are you doing with it? Where are you investing here? And so it is my hope that you will submit to the king today and enter into his joy. I'm going to ask the band to come um, just for a couple of minutes. It's, uh, we've run a little late. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I, I want to give some of you an opportunity to sort of stew in his gravy. Um, because when we're talking about understanding a right relationship with God and with our stuff, there may be some people here to, who want to come forward today as the band is playing and just pray. We'll be up here. We're happy to pray with you. But even to pray by yourselves and to reorient your mind and to say, you know what? I want, to, I want to leave today understanding that everything I have, every gift, every material thing, every spiritual gift, whatever, has come from the hand of God. And it was not just intended for me. In fact, he gave it to me so that I would give it out. And, 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 and we leak. And we need to remind ourselves of that regularly. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we close today. Those of you who wish to come forward and just pray and... and Think about your relationship to the material world, to our Lord. And, and look, ask yourself that question, the giving question. Where is the evidence of God's grace in my life? Where am I giving? Because that's where the evidence is. That's where it is. So let's bow our heads and pray and come forward as you wish. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're going to break chains today to material things, change to addictions in our life, change to anything that would be other than you. So help us now, God, we pray.